what goes up must come down. Welcome to the Brand Breakdown. I'm Michelle. And I'm Courtney. And this is where we're going to track the rise and fall of big brands, from companies to celebs to pop culture phenoms and everything in between. Let's get started. Hey, everybody. This is a bonus episode of the Brand Breakdown. And tonight we're going to be, and I say night because it's late and I'm tired. Um yeah, it's so late. I mean, so late. Is it the middle of the night? Is it, it is like it eight 8.13? Is it 8.13? <laughs> that is the middle of the night for some of us. <laughs> I am already in my jammies and ready to go to bed. But we had to get this out there because um, Endgame dropped on Tuesday and we didn't have a chance to talk about it yesterday. So we are talking about it tonight, which is the new Omid Scooby book. And... Yep. Um, so uh, this will come to you tomorrow that so we're doing a special late night episode of the brand breakdown <laughs> so that we can chat with you a little bit about this book and what's happened and the controversy already surrounding it and who Omid Scobie is and et cetera and so on. So um, as you know, Courtney is our royal aficionado and she is going to tell us a little bit about the book and a little bit about the scandal. And then we're going to kind of chat through uh, what we think about it and then talk about future episodes from here. So I spent all day since whatever time I texted you this morning, listening to Endgame on two times speed because the man reads it. Like, I don't know who he thinks he's reading it for, but he speaks so slowly that I had to listen to it on two times speed. Um, So I've been listening to it all day and I got all the way through to chapter... I didn't finish what's it. The, what's the tampon thing? Oh my gosh. So way back in the day, I got through chapter 11 and there's 14 chapters, 15 chapters. So um, the tampon thing is back in the day when Charles was still Prince Charles, he said, so his phone was tapped um, or he like left a voicemail for Camilla that was like intercepted or something. And he said like, oh, I wish I was. Uh, I wish I was your Tampax so I could always be like close to you or something like that. Like so gross. And somebody, it was like an accidental thing. Like somebody was playing with like a, like a CB radio type of thing. And somehow it intercepted his phone call. And so then they recorded it and they sold it to a newspaper. Um, And so that was published, which was like really nobody's business. Well, and fucking disgusting. What? Isn't, isn't that so gross? Like if a so guy ever gross. said that to me, I'd be like, oh, well, that was yeah. a red flag. So I'm done now. <laughs> but basically in the prologue, Omid starts out by saying that he was in the middle of writing Endgame when the queen died. So he basically had to go back and start editing and kind of revising and rewriting right at the beginning. And he described it as editing during a dynastic sea of change that changed many of his perceptions. And it's interesting because as we're reading, I was listening (laughs) to the book, his perceptions that were changed don't seem to, it seems like his perceptions changed a long time ago. He says later on in the book, I think around chapter, I don't really, um, I don't know. I have it in my notes somewhere. But he said at some point he made the conscious decision that he was going to go from covering all the royals to like focusing on Megan. And he initially had been an entertainment reporter. He worked for Us Weekly's European Bureau. He worked for a couple of websites. 
and he was an entertainment reporter and then he kind of transitioned into being a royal reporter. And so he talks a lot in the book about how he has both sides of like Megan's life kind of because he has sources from the entertainment industry and the royal industry, which none of the royal reporters really had at the time because they had always just been so focused on their beat. And so he said he made the decision to, you know, focus on Megan. And to me, that sounds like, like making the decision that you're going to have like a pet favorite royal that's going to be the person you focus on, like right there, like you're not, you're no longer an unbiased source, right? Like he's admitting he made a decision to only follow one person. So he just kind of talks a lot about the, he, he goes through, the book's not really in chronological order. It's told kind of person by person. So the chapters are the queen and her piper, and that's talking about the queen's final death, uh, final days and her death. Um, the next chapter, chapter two, is shaky ground. The queen is dead and the monarchy faces trouble. Chapter three, oh God, I hate this. King Charles's premiere. Chapter four, remembrance of things past, ongoing campaign to make the royals great again. Chapter five, baggage, the lingering trials of King Charles. So after that, after chapter four, he starts going through royal by royal. So he talks about Charles. He talks about Andrew. He talks about the concept of the institutional bigotry and denial, race and the royals, institutional bigotry and denial. Then it's gloves on Prince William, gloves off Prince Harry, the men and women in gray. So talking about the courtiers. He talks about Princess Diana. There's a whole chapter on Princess Diana. Um, there's a whole chapter on just Camilla and Kate, which I did not actually get to listen to. Every book, every chapter in the book is at least a 30-minute read because I'm listening to the audio. And then each Camilla and Kate separately gets their own. Camilla's is 43 minutes. Kate's is 50. Um, and then A Dangerous Game, Royals in the Media, The Decay of Years, The Fading Glory of the Crown. So he just kind of goes through like every person. So I've gotten all the way through him going. I'm in the Diana chapter right now, which is just seems like a really weird chapter to include about the monarchy as it stands today, considering Diana has been dead for longer than she was ever a member of the royal family, which feels really like harsh to say, but it's true. And it just seems like a weird thing to like have him write an entire chapter on the monarchy and include her when it's like, she's not, she hasn't been a part of any of this other than Harry and Meghan. The first thing we're going to talk about is the uh, small bookshelf crisis that happened when the book dropped in the Netherlands and then had to be quickly yanked from the shelves because it named um, the alleged racist from Harry and Meghan's Oprah interview. Right. Right. Yeah, so the Dutch language versions of Endgame were pulled off of the shelves this morning after having been released yesterday because, like you said, it turned out that someone had named names when it came to who the royal racists were. And actually, it looks like there may be two people named. Um, And it's very interesting because Omid had been saying in the press leading up to the book's launch that he would not be saying the name of the person. He knew who the royal racist was, but he would not be saying their name because of libel laws, UK libel laws, he said. And it's really interesting because in the UK, in most countries, if somebody is slandering somebody or defaming somebody, the person 
doing the defaming or slandering has to prove it's true. And the victim is not required to prove that it's false. The slanderer has to, the burden of proof is on the person making the accusation. In the UK, it's the opposite. In the UK, the burden of proof is on the person being slandered to prove that what they're saying, that that's what is being said is slander. UK libel laws work a little bit differently than they do in almost every other country. And so apparently Omid was extra cautious because he did not want to have to then go prove how he knew who the racist was, should anybody bring a lawsuit against him. As it turns out, even though he said he would not be naming it, in the Dutch language version of the book, there was one name that was explicitly mentioned. This person was mentioned by name and there was another person mentioned by their title. And it's really interesting because Omid is saying that it was a translation error. I wrote the English version and edited it. And I don't know how that could have got there because I never had a name in there. But when you actually read the passage and you look at how it's written, there's no way that could be some sort of translation error because the name is just in there. It says a sentence of like, and the person was identified colon. And then the name is right there. So that's not a translation error. That was something that my guess, my theory that, isn't I don't know, may not end up being true at all. But I'm assuming that the Dutch publishing company had an earlier version of the book and someone forgot to tell them that there had been a last minute edit <laughs> and not to print that version. And my guess is they just printed they printed something that had not was not actually the final copy. Or it was a publicity stunt. And they knew that it was going to happen and they knew that they were going to pull it and they knew that that was going to be out there because he really wanted people to know, but he didn't want to say it and risk being libelous. I mean, so a lot of people have that theory, but because so like I said, like UK libel works one way, US libel works a different way. The Netherlands actually has one of the strongest libel laws and libel is actually part of their criminal code. So it's not just a civil charge. It's a criminal offense if you are found guilty of libel or slander or defamation. So he that would have been one of the riskiest places for him to have pulled that publicity stunt. He would have been better off doing it in a U.S. publication. Um, my guess is that the U.S. and the U.K. publishing house was the same because it's the same language. And therefore, he didn't have the option to do it in the U.S. and not in the U.K. because there weren't two separate versions of the book. Um, but he would have – he if that was a publicity stunt, he picked the wrong country to do it in because he would have been better off doing it in – and actually, he probably would have been better off doing it in the U.K. because then the royals would have had to have – proven that he was they would have had to prove that they were not racist as opposed to him having to prove that they were you know does that make sense it's all very confusing in my brain it does make sense um so i don't know that we on this show should say the names of the people that were named in the book um, mm-hmm. not that, not that I'm, I'm not trying to protect them, but I also don't want to be sued for libel. 
Uh, and I'm not <laughs> sure, you know, I'm not sure what uh, all the negligence that has to be proven here in the U.S. for them to say, it's not true. We didn't say it. You weren't there. Even if you allege it, um, it it's not true. So I don't want to, uh, let's just say this. You can Google it. You can Google yeah, it. Yeah, you can a, Google it's it. Out, it's out there. It's out there. Um, Head on over to Twitter. They're talking all about it over there. Oh, really? Um, yeah. So where on Twitter could someone find it? The original Dutch journalist who found it in the book, he was the first person to report it. He posted a screenshot of it on Twitter. So his name is Rick Evers and his Twitter or X handle or whatever it is, is Rick Evers Royal. And he was the first reporter to have it published. And he actually like posted a screen. He actually posted a picture of the physical hard copy of the book. So you can go follow him, see what he has to say about it. Um, and then from there, you'll see lots of other people talking about it. And then another journalist later found another mention of somebody else in the book. So yeah, it's out there. All right. So that said, um, so they pulled it. So it's not in any of the other versions, but um, now that we know it's out there, what does that mean for those people? I don't know. I've been thinking a lot about this today as I was. So I heard about all of this happening and then I listened to the audiobook. So I was listening to the book being like, oh, I wonder where in the book this like would have fit in. You know what I mean? Because I saw this picture of the page, but I don't know exactly where it happened uh, in terms of like what page is on. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about what's the royal family going to do. And I honestly, some people are saying like, this is it. They need to go after him. They need to sue him for everything he's got. And just like, like, yeah, he's right. He named the book Endgame and this is the end game. Like, this is it. He's done. Harry and Meghan are done. Whatever. I don't think the royal family is going to do that. I honestly think they're just going to be like, you know what? Someone finally named names. Harry and Meghan have been holding on to like the, oh, we won't say who it is for, what is it, two years now? Someone finally named names. This is going to blow over because everything always does. And we're just going to, you know, stiff up our lip, never complain, never explain. And we're just going to weather the storm. And Omid's credibility is pretty shot after this book, honestly. Um, the is that your opinion or is that everyone's opinion? That's everyone's opinion. He, so honestly, so actually when I was reading the book, I told you when I said this morning I was going to start listening to it. And I was like, I will take one for the team. I will do it for you. I will listen to this audiobook. And I was not <laughs> looking forward to it. And I was I just gave like, you a big oh, heart emoji for that. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, and right. I was just like, I do not want to listen to this. I didn't want to give Omid is somebody that um, I had like interacted with on Twitter before. I've now been blocked. <laughs> he blocked me like last year sometime. Um, but I just didn't want to give him the satisfaction of being like, oh, I bought your book, but whatever. I had to do it so I could do my due diligence. Honestly, it wasn't as bad as I was anticipating. But the thing about it was there was literally not a single stitch of new information in the book besides the names of the royal racists. So 
it was basically like he just copy pasted stuff from Finding Freedom, stuff from Spare, lifted some stuff from the Harry and Meghan documentary, lifted stuff from other newspaper and tabloid headlines and articles. But none of it was new. None of it was groundbreaking. Um, He did a lot of it was very interesting. It seems like he was really trying to make himself seem credible by talking so much about how he used to be an entertainment reporter and then he was a royal reporter and the royals really liked him and he had had conversations with Meghan and Harry and even Prince William on occasion and you know everybody liked him a lot and blah 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 and he had all of these sources and he had such great relationships with the different um, palace aides and he spends a lot of time in the book talking about his story and it seems like he's just trying to kind of be a little bit whiny and be like, no, 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 you have to believe me. Like, I promise I'm telling the truth. But there's nothing new. There's stuff in it that has been, like, not really, like, there's rumors from, like, years and years and years ago that he brings up unnecessarily. Like, he, for example, brings up that Prince Charles has somebody whose job it is is to put toothpaste on his toothbrush for him, which is something that people have like literally for decades have been using against Prince Charles to be like, Oh, he's such a pampered, spoiled out of touch person. He has someone who puts his toothpaste on his toothbrush for him. And the thing of that is yes. At one time it was true because he was in a, I believe it was a polo. He was playing polo and like fell and broke his arm and broke his shoulder. And so for a few months he couldn't move his arm And so somebody had to help him with that (laughs) because he couldn't do it himself. So yes, it it was true in that extent of like at some point in his life, somebody did that for him, but it wasn't this thing of like, oh, that's what he has somebody do every day for him. Like every day for his 75 years of life, he's been so pampered. It was just a story that got blown way out of proportion from 40 years ago that Omid brought up again, just to take a dig at somebody. And it just he did that a lot throughout the book where things just felt like he was just taking little digs. And at one point he said something about William and Kate, and I can't remember exactly what he said, but again, I was listening to the audiobook, and he literally goes, ahem, <laughs> when he's like at the end of the sentence he's reading to be like, like show that he thinks it's a, you know, a ridiculous thing that they were trying to brush off or whatever it was. And there was just so much snark and whatever interjected into it all, but it wasn't terrible, but only from the perspective of like, I was expecting it to be a lot worse and there was just nothing new. There was no big bombshell. There was no big revelation of like, Oh my goodness, they're bringing up more stuff. It was just the same stuff that we've already. So my, my first question though is tell me again, why you think he called it in game because there was a very popular movie just a couple of years ago called Endgame. And so if you Google Endgame, you're going to get Marvel's Endgame like 50,000 times before you get <laughs> Omid Scobie's book. So why did he call it Endgame? So he called it Endgame, I believe, because he is trying to make the case throughout this book that the monarchy is old, stodgy, out of touch, and that they are not going to be able to survive past the next one or two generations, meaning past William's reign. Um, and so he thinks that this is the end game for the monarchy, as in this is the end of the monarchy. He's 
not saying it in any sort of positive way. He's saying that like, this is the downfall of everything. So it's not, nothing is really shown in a very positive light in the book. And for every positive thing he says about somebody, he makes sure to like hit them with three negative things right after. Well, an in game also means like, what is your purpose? You know, like what, what are you trying to achieve? So what do you think he means in terms of that kind of in game? I like, what do I think his end game in writing the book was, or what do I think he thinks the monarchy's end game is? Yes. What does he think the monarchy's end game is? I think that he thinks the monarchy's end game is that they are trying to modernize and revolutionize their institution and that it's an uphill battle that they can't win. But I think what he's, I, I don't know, because he, and again, I haven't finished it. He does have a whole chapter called Endgame, um, but I ha- it's the last chapter, so I haven't gotten there yet. Um, but he seems to just be saying that, like, he thinks that this is the monarchy's fight for survival. The subtitle is Inside the Royal Family and the Monarchy's Fight for Survival. And I think that he just thinks that the end game is the downfall of the monarchy, you know, through, through, for this last thousand years, they've been fighting and fighting and it ends now like this. All right. Tell me about the prologue. (laughs) The prologue was one of the most annoying parts of the book, (laughs) like right up front. It was just super annoying. He was talking about how he had to rewrite a lot of the book because he was writing the book when the queen died. So he went back, he edited, he revised, he added the whole prologue. He added the first couple of chapters, chapters one and two were written after the queen had died. Maybe chapter three was as well. And he's talking about how he's writing this book during a dynastic sea of change, which changed many of his perceptions. And the perceptions that for him were changed were that he was suddenly seeing this royal family that he had grown up admiring because he is a UK citizen, he's saying that this royal family that he'd grown up admiring was now just this horrid institution full of unconscious bias and outright racism and just refusing to modernize and change with the times. That is what his perception ended up being after the queen died. Prior to the queen dying, apparently he did not have those perceptions. Um, Also during the prologue, he's incredibly, he's just laying it on so thick about how he got to um when the queen was lying in state he was able to go there because the press were able to get there ahead of the public and all of that and he says at one point there were the orb and the scepter i'd see them in person many times and it's like ugh, like just we get it like we get it you're special we get it go away within the first couple minutes takes aim at camilla talking about how She's queen now because they had lied about her only being princess consort, which during her relationship with Charles and after they were married, it was said that she would not be known as the queen. She would just be known as princess consort. And then a few months before she died, the late queen said she hoped that Camilla would be the queen. And this was a public statement that had been given. And so that was kind of her giving her blessing that Camilla should be the queen. And so the princess consort thing was finally put, put away and put to rest, which honestly I thought it never should have been brought up for public consumption because it sets the precedence that 
a queen is not married to a king. He's married to a princess consort. And then what does that mean for Kate down the line? And what does that mean for George's wife down the line? Um, He then goes on to take a dig at Charles, describing him as a philanderer who destroyed the life of Princess Diana, who Princess Diana has an entire chapter dedicated to her. And she's also brought up within the first, I think it's seven minutes of the listening to the book, she was brought up three times. <laughs> so he talks a People lot. People do love her. Diana. People do love her. She still sells. I, I know. People love her. But I feel like the way that Harry and Meghan exploit her memory is not... I think even the biggest Diana fan is kind of like, well, I guess, I don't know. I guess the biggest Diana fan... Whenever they see Harry and Meghan being like, oh, we don't want to end up like Diana, blah, 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 They are very sympathetic to them and that gains them a lot of sympathy. But to me, it's just, it, I don't know. They're exploiting a woman's tragic death. It just feels gross, even if it is his mom. Um, yeah, I don't, then, I don't disagree with that. Yeah. And then he goes on to talk about how he thinks that this crisis that he's that the king is having with harry is a sign that he's going to be a bad king because he's not able to address crises head on um and just he just really settles in right in the prologue with like okay we're gonna take digs at everybody this is not a book about fact necessarily this is a very biased book that is using old press stories and rumors to kind of spin Omid's narrative. And there's a lot of things in here, again, that, you know, they're straight from Spare or they're straight from Harry and Meghan's docuseries. He literally at some points is like, in the documentary, they said, and it's like, okay, so this isn't new information. You did not speak to any new person. You just watched the same Netflix special that everybody else watched. And he just kind of, I don't know. He just, I don't know. It was a weird read or listen to story time, I guess. All right. So I want to talk about some of the takeaways from the book. So one of the things I Mm -hmm. was reading is that one of the overarching themes of the book was that there is a, uh, an ongoing um, feud between William and Charles that um, people that Charles, um, that William doesn't think his father is competent enough to, to handle the job of King and that um, he believes Charles to be a transitional king until he can take the throne. Um, mm-hmm. What and I, and I think he talks about it in the book. So he does. So have we um, have we heard this? Do we know about this? Is this new news? Um, so this is something that's been floating around for a while. I think actually. Few years ago, before the Queen died, I actually wrote a blog post on the topic. Um, I don't necessarily think that it is specifically William feels his father can't handle it. I think that what it actually is is that due to the king's age, he is seventy-five years old. He is, for better or for worse, he is a transitional king. He's not going to have a lifetime of being the monarch. He's not going to even have you know, middle age through being elderly of being the monarch. He's already an old man. And so the institution of the monarchy with William certainly being a part of that. And I think to a certain extent, Charles also realizing this, 
there's just an understanding that yes, Charles is the king, but he is a bridge. He is a bridge to get the country from the late queen to William. And that's part of why we're not seeing any major upheavals in the way the royal family are doing things. And that's why we've seen William take a more prominent role in some things. And also why we saw the king take a more prominent role from things from the queen, because they're trying to make this seamless transition and the modernizing aspects of things and the changes in how the monarchy operates are coming from William, not coming from William as a directive, but coming from William as he and Catherine are the ones who are doing it now so that when he is king, it's more normal to people. So for example, right now, the king, the king has done a ton of good. He has, he founded the princess trust. He founded Duchy originals. Um, he's done such amazing work with conservation and green living and holistic health and all of that stuff. Um, and he's also done a lot of work with underprivileged youth and marginalized communities. And he's really done a ton of great work. But he still is working on that model of he shows up at a place, he cuts some ribbons, he shakes some hands, he kisses some babies. And that's the royal model that we're all very familiar with. William and Catherine do that too. But you also see William with the Earthshaw Prize, Catherine with the Early Years Foundation or the Early Years Center. So what they're doing is they're creating these more overarching like mini brands within themselves where they're focusing on some core matters. They're not going out and doing 800, 1200 engagements per year. They're doing more involved work with fewer organizations to make a bigger, more substantial impact in like a specific subject matter, if that makes any sense. And that's how a lot of the other monarchies work as well. That's what the Scandinavian monarchies do. Um, and that's the model that the monarchy in the UK is likely headed. But the institution of the monarchy knows that, you know, when the queen died, they couldn't be like, all right, we're changing things up. So Charles is a transition. He's a bridge to get to the more modern way of doing things in William's reign. So what I have seen and read is that William is slowly separating himself from his father and all of his father's um, endeavors and capitalizing on his popularity by kind of, um, so William is, he knows he's more popular than the king. He knows that the king is transitional. And so he is um, capitalizing on his popularity, using that popularity to kind of keep himself as a king in waiting in a way that continues to increase his popularity over the long term, you know, so that if something happened to King Charles, William could easily step in and everyone would be super happy. Right. Yeah. And I don't think that's necessarily any sort of, you know, like father versus son situation. I think it's just the way the monarchy works is every Every principal has an office. So there's Buckingham Palace, which takes care of the monarch and minor royals. And then Kensington Palace takes care of Catherine and William. And the job of Kensington Palace is to make sure that Catherine and William are always presented in the best light, period. So they're never going to – they're always going to try to position them 
as well as they can. And this is one of the things that in spare, Harry took a lot of issue with because Harry says in order to do that, everybody's throwing each other under the bus all the time. I don't necessarily think that's the case. Um, although it definitely may have happened at times. I don't think everyone's out there backstabbing each other a hundred percent of the time just to like try to one up each other. But I do think that, you know, if William sees his father do something that he thinks might not be taken, like maybe the public might disagree with, William might kind of take a step back from it, or he might kind of do something that leans a little bit more toward what he thinks the public does want to see in that regard. And I I, I, it's tough because there's no way to say like, oh, they're not trying to one up each other, even though sometimes they a little bit are trying to capitalize on if one of them makes a mistake, the other one jumps at the opportunity to be the one who looks better. But it's not done with any sort of malice and trying to knock each other down in the process, if, if that makes any sense. It probably No, didn't. it does. It does. I mean, I think William has okay. respect for Charles. Um, yeah. but he still knows that he's the more popular Royal and his wife is the more popular Royal and his kids are more popular and he capitalizes on that. I can't imagine though, that Charles would ever abdicate the throne. I think he'll be on it till he dies. Don't you think? Yeah. I don't think in other countries, the monarchs retire. Um, they don't even really call it. I mean, it is officially an abdication, but they call it like a retirement. And I think it's kind of nice because then, the monarch gets to help the new monarch along their way and, you know, be a part of that transition in a different capacity. But in the UK, that's not what we do. We don't, we don't resign. We don't abdicate. We're in it for life. Even if life means you are 96 years old and like (laughs) not doing well. Um, But that is just, I don't, I don't see Charles ever abdicating. I don't Unless either. He I think he's been like waiting. Forced. Yeah, I think he's been waiting for this for 20 years, so I don't see it either. So um, yeah. another thing I read about in the book is that William and Harry's relationship is essentially over um, and that there is deep anger from William to Harry uh, from what he feels like was a giant betrayal over everything that Harry and Meghan have done in the last couple mm-hmm. of years. And yeah. I also um, I also read that William really didn't like Megan. Is that is that something that you've read as well? Do we believe that? Do we think he ever liked her? Um, I um, don't know. I'm not. I, I wasn't privy to those conversations. But um. <laughs> um, yeah, my my good friends William and Kate didn't didn't fill me in exactly on that one. Um, for a while, since Megan and Harry's relationship had become public. The idea of, you know, they were being billed as like the Fab Four and all this stuff, it always felt very forced. The four of them never seemed, when they were in public together, they never seemed very natural. They never seemed like four people who spent a lot of time together and who were having a good time together. So the idea that they've never been close, I 100% buy that. I don't necessarily, I think that it was more a situation of, William and Kate never had an opportunity to like really get to know Megan in the sense that they are very, very private. They're notoriously guarded. They don't let many people into their circle. She was, you know, she was just Harry's girlfriend. Um, 
So they weren't going to get too close, especially when I think they had been pretty close to his other girlfriends. And so maybe they were kind of like, all right, we've already like we've had our heart broken twice now when you broke up with the last two. So like we don't want to get too attached to anybody right now. Um, Also not forgetting that during the engagement period of Harry and Meghan, Kate was pregnant with her third child. So William and Kate were in a very different stage of their life. You know, Harry and Meghan are two people who are planning a wedding and they don't have any kids. And then William and Catherine are, you know, they've got two toddlers and a third on the way and they're working royals and they're just in different stages. So I just don't think the four of them ever really got a chance to connect. There have been a lot of rumors that Harry, uh, William was very, he would tell Harry like, you know, go slow, like don't rush into anything, be careful with this girl. And Harry really took offense to that right off the bat. And I think in spare, Harry said it was proof, like William telling Harry to be careful was proof that like he just didn't like Megan right away. Whereas I think any other person, you know, if you see somebody you know and care about going into this like whirlwind romance, you might be like, whoa, like I'm happy you're happy, but you know, just go slow. Don't, you know, don't do anything crazy. Don't dive in head first. Just like take it slow. But Harry took that as like, oh, he doesn't like her, which set Harry off on a very defensive footing. And I think now where they're at, William, Harry has done so much and hurt so many people in such an intentional way that I just, I don't see how anybody could ever trust him again. Maybe one day they would forgive him, but I don't think they would ever trust him again. I mean, he wrote, he let somebody write a book, right? He helped with the Finding Freedom book that Omid wrote, Omid's first book. Then they did the Meghan and Harry Netflix special or series. Then he wrote Spare, not to mention the Oprah interview, not to mention all of the little digs that they let out in the press. And, you know, Harry, I don't know, he really, he intentionally and purposefully said hurtful things about William and Catherine and the king and queen on an international stage and doesn't appear to have any remorse for it. And all he wants is for somebody to say, you know what, you're right. We owe you an apology. And I think I said in the last episode, for at some point, there might have been a point where the royal family said to Harry and Meghan, like, you know what, let's talk about this. You're right. We could have handled things better. We owe you an apology. Harry and Meghan have done so much worse since then that now I don't think they should ever get an apology from the royal family because they've just proven that they aren't deserving of one and like they should never be trusted again (laughs) i did read that charles was open to having some sort of relationship with harry but that he has no relationship with camilla um is that do you feel like that's accurate that harry has no relationship with camilla yeah that harry has no relationship with camilla yeah, I mean, I I think that from the perspective of, like, that's, like, that's his dad. And from Charles's perspective, that's his son. And they're always going to love each other. And I think Charles will always hope that they can somehow be reunited as a family. Um, I think Harry has always hated Camilla his entire life. He's played nice with her before when he had to. 
Um, I believe he's actually friends with his step siblings, but he has always, 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 since he was a little boy, blamed Camilla for being the reason his parents split up, for being the reason his mother died. And now he's a, what is, what is he, 38, 38 year old man who is still holding on to the emotions that he had when he was 12 years old. And I don't think Harry will ever. And I don't, at this point, the things he's said about Camilla, I don't think that she would ever want a relationship with him. You know, like she has played nice with William and Harry for a very long time. And William has played nice with her for a very long time and still does. And Harry did for a while and then he stopped. And I think Camilla is kind of the type of person where she's like, great, well then gloves are off. I'm not going to play nice with you anymore either. And so I can't imagine even if Harry and Charles have a relationship and they talk on the phone and maybe, you know, like we talked about last time, like maybe they go for Christmas one year. I don't think Harry and Camilla are going to be having any cozy chats by the fire. Yeah, I don't think so either. One thing I want to bring up from something you just said, you said it feels like Harry was emotionally stunted at the age of 12. Um, when mm-hmm. you experience a trauma like he experienced with his mom dying, I mean, it's a significant trauma that often does mm-hmm. happen to children who don't um, then get a type of therapy that helps them move beyond that. I've seen that um, in my own, in my own sphere and um, of friends and family and things where traumatic events happened for people at a very young age and they were unable to move past that adolescence, which is what mm-hmm. he would have been at the advent of his adolescence. So I, th- I do think that that is accurate, that sometimes people get stuck in that trauma and it's incredibly yeah. difficult for them to get over it. And, and it rewires your brain. I don't know, you know how much our audience knows about trauma or you know about trauma, but trauma does rewire your brain. And so if you are not able to rewire it again um, with the help of a good therapist or with, you know, um, mental health, um, you know, drugs and things like that, if you're not able to, to kind of um, overcome it, then it stays and you're, and that's, that's who you are. You, you are a version of that adolescent frozen in time. Um, yeah, that happens. That happens and a lot. I also think that Harry has unfortunately found himself in a position where there are certain people around him, without naming any names, who are capitalizing on that trauma. Right? Like they are making a brand of playing the victim and comparing themselves to the traumatic incident that happened in Harry's life, and so they're making him constantly rehash it and relive it and have a fear of history repeating itself. And I believe that there may be some people in his life who are intentionally causing that type of distress for him, knowing that like, this is probably not helpful and no doctor would probably recommend someone continue reliving this traumatic thing every day of their life for years. Right. No, I mean that, that, that can be, very predatory. People can use trauma like that to prey on people um, and uh, use their trauma against him in order to gain something for themselves or to um, get their own kind of satisfaction for whatever it is that they're unfulfilled in. 
Um, mm-hmm. That does happen a lot. And there's a, you know, and when you, when you identify, when you lead with victimization, when you lead as I am a victim and this has happened to me, this was done to me. Um, sometimes it's difficult to overcome that, you know, um, I mean, I used the term, I think in the last episode of overcomer. Um, and if yeah. you're someone who can be an overcomer, which is a thing, um, I think that you can uh, rise above the, um, the victim mentality. I'm not taking away from the realness of anyone's trauma, uh, because I certainly understand trauma. What I'm saying is that it is possible to move through it, to move forward, um, not not negating it, not letting go of it, but to move through it and come out on the other side, um, a whole person, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm sorry. That's my little diatribe on trauma. <laughs> sorry. Well, I think it's, I think- like, it's like important to like understand how things have gotten to the point they are. And like, it's not just that his mom died, it's that his mom died and it affected him in such a way, you know? So I think it's like important to look into all of that stuff. And and I think to him, his mom has died over and over and over and over for 25 years, you know, like yeah. his, because people force him to go through it again, or they force him into a situation where he feels like, oh my God. I've created a new victim or I am a new victim instead of um, maybe surrounding himself with people who say, you're not a victim. You don't have to be like that. You, this doesn't have to be your story. You can, right. you can make your own story. Um, right. Or it can be a part of your story, but it doesn't have to be the only story. Right. It doesn't have to you, being a victim. Being a victim doesn't have to define you. It doesn't, it doesn't right. have to be your defining, shining, or non-shining moment is that I'm a victim and this happened to me. It did happen to him, but he was a baby. You know, he was, he was, you know, 12 is a baby. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I, it just feels like maybe he wasn't given the care and the support and the, the counseling that he needed early on, the grief counseling, especially um, to overcome the, enormous trauma that he and the rest of the world went through, you know? Yeah. So anyway, all right. I got to get off of that subject. Sorry. I'm probably worrying everybody, but I do, I do feel for him in that way. I can't help it. I can't help that. I have so much compassion for the fact that he still continues to relive that trauma in his life. And I hate that there are people in his life who continue to force him to, relive that trauma. I don't think that's fair either. If that's really happening, you know? Yeah. Um, so anyway, moving on. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and we don't know, but you know, there's certainly right. some evidence that, that points to, to that. Um, and, and I hope that's, I hope that's not the case. So, all right, moving on. Another thing they talk about in the book is that um, Kate and Megan were never, have never, and will never be friends, that there is a big icebox between them. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> so, so let's chat a little bit about, about that, because that's certainly not what we initially thought, right? When we saw them hanging out together and they were in Wimbledon and they were, you know, all looking nice in their outfits together, which they both dress beautifully. Um, we thought that they were going to be friends and then that was not the case. Yeah. I mean, I think everybody hoped that they would be friends. I think 
I think, you know, part of the life that they lead is that they both married into this family and they have this expectation of a public life and that public life involves being publicly around each other, whether or not they are two people who would have naturally gravitated towards each other. You know, they were kind of forced into this situation. And I think that they never really hit it off. And I don't think that's necessarily either one of their fault. I just think they have two very different personalities and they just kind of, you know, Kate is very reserved. She's very shy. She takes a while to get to know people and trust people. Megan is much more gregarious and outgoing. And, you know, Megan describes herself in the Harry and Megan documentary. She says, you know, like I'm a hugger. And it was so odd to me that the first time I met William and Kate, like I went in for a hug and like, they just seemed so physically uncomfortable with that. And it's like, well, yeah, not all people are huggers. I am not a hugger. Like, I'm just not, I don't like when a stranger touches me. Some people love hugging people, like, you know, and it doesn't mean that either one of those things is wrong or bad or that because Megan was a hugger and Kate wasn't, Kate hated her right off the bat. But I think that perhaps Meg, Megan took that a little bit personally, like as opposed to saying like, oh, okay, sorry, like you have a boundary that I'm crossing. Um, and another story that they told was about the lip gloss. The four of them were at an event together and uh, Kate used her lip gloss or something. And then Megan was like, oh, can I use some too? And Kate was like, uh, really? Like you want to share lip gloss? Which I don't know. I've always been told like you don't share lip gloss and you don't share mascara. Like mascara rules of makeup. Yeah. Yes. Like rules of makeup. You don't share your lip gloss. You don't share your mascara. These are the rules of being a girl. And so Megan, who again was somebody that was she was Harry's fiance at the time, but Kate didn't really know her and they didn't really have like a close personal relationship. And she's like, Oh, can I use your lip gloss? And Kate was like, um, sure. And I think that Harry described it as Kate seemed disgusted by it. And it's like, well, yeah, I would have been like, no, I, I would have just said no, I wouldn't have let somebody use my lip gloss. I would have been like, no, I'm sorry, you can't. Um, but like, Megan so if I Harry asked to use that. your lip gloss, you wouldn't let me? I would not no. Oh my if my kids ask me for chapstick, if I'm putting chapstick on and my kids ask me for chapstick, I go get one from like one of their chapsticks. And I'm like, oh, you can use yours. Or I'll like well, use chap- my finger to put their chapstick on. But like you don't Actually. share lip products. Mm-mm. All right. Nope. So chapstick seems much more intimate to me than lip gloss. Like I feel like I could use your lip gloss. I mean, I have used all my friends' yeah. lip stuff. Not mascara. Just, never. Would never do mascara. Never mascara. It's just, it's not about the like, one being more like into it's just it that goes on that goes near my mouth it doesn't go near your mouth because it goes near my mouth (laughs) you know it's funny because I'm such a germaphobe I mean you know that I'm such a germaphobe but I have in the past had zero problem (laughs) with using people's lip glosses like I would not ever do mascara because a friend told me one time she lost her eyelashes because of mascara. Yeah. I don't know that if that's actually what happened. People get like um, crazy eye infections from sharing. Yeah. Apparently your so eyelashes always... are very dirty. Ew. Ew. Really? Yeah. Um, apparently uh, like your eyelashes are like super dirty and it's like, it's one of those type of bacteria that like every person has it, but like yours is yours. And if it like, you, you don't want to swap it. <laughs> 
Oh yeah. I don't, the mascara thing, like ever since, I mean, we were in high school when, when I heard that. And so I've never, ever let anybody use my mascara ever. And if they do, I'm like, yep, just keep it. <laughs> like, I don't want it back. <laughs> that's, that's yours now. Yeah. That's yours now. Cause my daughter has used my mascara before and, um, and I've been like, Oh yeah, you just keep that. Yeah. Yeah. It's no, no problem. Yeah. Just, just keep it. No. I mean, um, I would let someone use my foundation. I would let someone use my blush or, eyeshadow maybe even if they used a new brush but not my lip products and not my mascara so Megan and Harry took it like they, they took it very personally and they were very offended that Kate wouldn't share her lip gloss and I don't know for me like that makes sense that's a normal thing you don't share lip gloss like no that's weird and I don't necessarily know that there was this like big ice box as you called it between the two of them I just think it was more like they never really had the time to become very close because they were at different stages of their lives. And then within a very short time, because again, if you think back to our earlier episodes and the time frame that we're talking about, Megan and Harry made the decision to leave the royal family. It was like less than a year after the wedding, you know? So there wasn't a lot of time there for Kate and Megan to form a close relationship because at the time of when Kensington palace split offices about a month after the wedding, like they hadn't known each other that long and they were already having problems in terms of Harry and Megan not wanting to be around because they were already like making moves to be out, you know? So like, I don't know whose fault it was that they were never very close. It seems like Harry and Meghan never wanted to stick around long enough for anybody to get close. But I don't know. It's just weird. <laughs> it's a weird situation. Yeah, it looks like they really have no relationship at all. And now Kate's relationship with Harry is pretty much over, even though they at one time were pretty close. Um, yeah, they like were they're... super close. They used to be so close. And I don't. I think that's probably like the thing that is like the most biggest like bummer. I was going to say like the most hurtful, but like I'm not hurt by this, but like the saddest thing of all is like how close Harry and Kate were. And then he went after her in spare and she had been up until that point, like she had been trying to get the two brothers to talk and trying to get everybody to make up and trying to like be the bridge between everybody. And then he went after her in spare. And I think that was just the saddest thing to be like, dude, she was the only one left on your side. <laughs> and like that was, she was your best chance at getting what you wanted and you just burned that bridge. So way to go, yeah. dude. It's sad. It's sad when that happens. Um, so then I read that uh, William, um, they they brought up that thing about the affair again. Uh, Scooby oh, did. Oh my god! Yeah, which he did. I feel like we're having, we I feel like we've beat that to death, and nothing really has come of it. And if there was anything there, it's really none of our business, frankly. You know that a marriage is an intimate thing, and while I'm delighted to talk about. Um, you know, relationships as we see them between brothers and between in-laws and between father and son, like, you know, accusations of infidelity without documented proof to, to kind of roll that out. Um, I think that's in poor taste. So we might just skip that little part. 
but I did. Yeah. I did read that because I don't think it's fair because it's not fair to Kate. She doesn't want to hear it again. You know, but the other thing is like, it's not even that like, oh, it's like not something we should talk about. The guy who said the rumor, who made up the rumor, <laughs> said it was a joke. <laughs> like, it's been proven false. Reporters have gone out and been like, listen, we promise if there was any truth to this, we would report it. And we can't find any proof to it. So we're not reporting it. Like, reporters are literally being like, yeah, we would totally love to be the one to get the scoop on the story. We've all been hoping it's true because that would just be like a career defining scoop, you know? And nobody can get the scoop because it doesn't exist. And then Omid goes and brings it back up. And it's just like, why are you rehashing things that have been proven to be false just for the sake of being nasty? And it's like, that's how the whole book felt. He was just saying things just to be nasty. It felt very bitter. And at one point in the book, he says that, you know, he used to be part of the Rhoda. He used to go to engagements. He had a great relationship, you know, working relationship with all of the royals he was covering. A few times he would have like conversations with William back in 2014. He had some conversation that he details in the book. And he says that all of that changed and he stopped being invited to engagements and he would have to fight to be included at an event where all of the rest of the Rhoda was attending and he would have to fight to get his press credentials for the event. And so a lot of what he was writing just comes off as like, this is somebody who's just bitter and pissed off that they chose the wrong side in a fight because he chose Harry and Meghan's side. And as a result, the royal family and the royal reporters shut him out. And so now he's left as like a one-man show on the side that appears to be a sinking ship. And he just seems kind of bitter about it. And that's what this whole book reads as is just he's really bitter and he's just taking personal shots at people because this is his last chance to really like stick it to him. Cause after this. Yeah. Like, he's bitter all the way yeah. to the bank on this book. Yeah. But like after this, what is there? Like Harry and Megan aren't doing anything he can report on. He's not allowed to really report, like be included on the official Royal credentials for reporting on Royals. He can't write another book like this because finding freedom in this one are essentially the same book at this point <laughs> like he's got nothing left this was his last shot the tank is empty well hopefully he'll save some of that money and then he can retire how old is he i think he's 40 oh well that's sad <laughs> you don't re- <laughs> want to retire necessarily at 40 unless you never really were interested in you know working in the first place to. in which in which case, I would love to retire to in four years when I turn 40. Really, I still do what something. What would you though. do? You would probably live another 60 years. What are you going to do for another 60 years? You, you'll just become, your brain will turn to mush. I think I'd have, brain will turn I mean, to mush. I'd probably, I'd write a book, which I guess is what Omid's doing. That's, um, I'd yeah, probably that's volunteer at an animal shelter. Like I do oh. like hobby type of stuff, you know? I would do hobby type of stuff too, but I would also, you know, make sure I kept my fingers in the game or whatever, you know, writing and doing that kind of stuff. I just don't think I, (laughs) I just know that during COVID there was a period of time where I did not work and um, my brain was like literally mush. It was, it was bad. Um, Well, so what, what is the biggest takeaway from the book? So let's, let's chat about that, that let's see, Omid is bitter. 
Mm-hmm. Um, Harry and yeah, Megan are bitter. Omid is bitter. <laughs> Harry and Megan are very much favored by Omid. Um, yep. He doesn't seem to like the rest of the royal family <clears throat> at all. Um, right. And points out every single one of their flaws. Oh, one of the people we did not talk about was Andrew. Um, oh God. I feel like, I feel like he's the hidden brother, you know, now that all that stuff has, um, he is because they literally yeah. have like pushed him. Like we never see him anymore. And when we do see him, it's like, Oh my God, Andrew was at this event. And it's like, yeah, it was his mom's funeral. <laughs> like, of course he was there. <laughs> like they weren't going to make him skip his mom's funeral. Um, I think I think Andrew's gonna have to be a series because my I God, think you're if right. we got a lot of episodes out of Harry and Meghan, <laughs> we could get like years of content out of Andrew. Well, yeah, although it's rather salacious, so we'd have to warn our audience way ahead of time that it's actually going to be explicit. Because yeah. ooh, I think well, he has the E mark. Not so good. Mm, we have mm-hmm. our E mark. They know going we in. Do have. <laughs> We do have our earmark, but I do think that he did some stuff that was maybe not to the benefit of the monarchy. <laughs> yeah, um, for sure. Yeah. And then we had a little bit about Edward and Sophie, um, but it didn't seem like that was too much, you know, it wasn't very revelatory. No, he just like, so Edward and Sophie, ever since, you know, the late or early 2000s, I think late 90s, early 2000s, Sophie had one misstep. Edward had his like, I'm going to be a Hollywood guy. And then they were like, no, you're not. You're going to go back to being a working royal. And ever since then, they have never put a foot wrong, as the British press like to say. They have been just wonderful members of the working family. They keep their head down. They raise their great kids. They're just good, kind people. And he took a dig at them. And it's like, oh, my God, buddy, they did nothing to you. They've done nothing to anybody. They don't even get press coverage when they do good stuff. Why are you <laughs> taking cheap shots at them? Like he just took a shot at everybody. It was ridiculous. Well, I think he had to. I think that was probably the whole purpose of the book was for him to empty out his vast uh, repository of bitter knowledge and dump it all over the world. I think that's why we're having this episode right now, special edition of the end game, because he took his shot at everybody. So we're breaking it down. Um, yeah. Who else did I miss? Is that, is that everybody he talked about? Uh, did he um, talk about the queen at all? He talked a lot about the queen. He had nothing bad to say about her. Um, oh, he was very, good. he spoke very favorably about the queen and then just tore everyone else to shit, which again, interestingly is the same line that Harry and Megan have always taken through this whole thing. They always took the line of like, like our dear grandmother and whatever. Like they were supporting the queen, da da da. da. But they w- had no problem trashing everybody else in their family. And not that I'm saying I wanted them to trash the queen at all. I don't think any of these people deserve it, but the queen certainly didn't. Except if you look at how everything played out, at the end of the day, every decision that was made that put Harry and Meghan in the position they're in was made by the queen. She's the one who said they couldn't be half in, half out. She's the one who took away Harry's titles. She's the one who, like, made sure that they couldn't have this life that they dreamed up. And they've taken it out on everybody else. And Harry has said, I think in spare, he said, you know, he doesn't think these decisions were her decisions. And it's like, at the end of the day, it was her decision. She may have been advised by some people. Yeah, she was a, she knew her own mind. 
Yeah. Like, it's not like she was this like weak, frail woman. Like she may have taken advice from some people and asked opinions, but at the end of the day, she made the decision. She formed her own opinion and she said, this is the rule. And Harry has blamed it on his father, his brother. He's blamed. He's even said that like some of it was because of the stuff going on with Andrew like Harry and Meghan were used as a scapegoat to like cover up the Andrew stuff. <laughs> like he's blamed it on everybody except for him and his wife, who are the two people most responsible for where they are now. And the queen, who's the one who made ultimately made the decisions. But he I feel like he and his, see it that way. Yeah. I think he and his wife were given a tremendous amount of grace by the queen in, in multiple ways. And, what she did, she did for the good of the monarch. And honestly, like what if she had let them be half in and half out and they had still trashed everything around them and he had still if published they had still done every single thing he did as a right. half in half out. Or, like, yeah, I mean, right. I mean, it, it and, could, it, that easily could have happened. And it's interesting. So in the book, Omid addresses the content deals. And he said that they like, they were forced to take deals like quickly and without really looking into them because they were like put in a position where they just like had to make money. And he specifically addresses the Spotify deal. And he says that they took the deal, never thinking that all of their ideas were going to be shot down in the way they were. And it's like, but wait, the reason you left is that you said you wanted to be financially independent and make your own money. If taking the Spotify deal was like a knee-jerk reaction to being cut off what was your plan before that you know like you seem to have had a plan we know that you were talking to netflix before you even left the family why are you trying to and i obviously they're trying to make it seem like it was a knee-jerk reaction something they didn't want to do but they had to do because they got dropped by spotify right this is just them covering their butts through omid but like they tried to make it he omid wrote that like basically like the spotify deal wasn't their fault they had to take it and then it wasn't their fault that it fell apart because like spotify wouldn't approve their deals and they never should have taken it in the first place but they were forced to by the big bad royal family and it's like i'm pretty sure you guys were working on that before you left i call baloney on that because um they they were offered a 100 million dollar deal and nobody who is Anybody is going to turn down a hundred million dollar deal if they're not able to make that type of money working within the royal family, which they were no longer able to make that type of money. So, yeah, it well, wasn't they, like they working offered in him- the royal family. They made no money, no zero dollars. Megan was quoted while on a tour saying, "I can't believe I don't get paid for this." So, like, they made zero dollars, and I think that was one of the things that really bothered them. So. Um, yeah, there's no way that they just jumped at the Netflix deal or jumped at the Spotify deal and um, they were like, oh no, it was a bad decision. They were given unlicensed creative freedom. Like they were, it was un- completely unfettered. Do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. And then it just didn't do well. You know, maybe yeah. they're just not that creative. Yeah, you know? I think at I mean, the end of the day, because Omid says in the book, like they were, they never expected that all of their ideas would be shot down. And it's like, okay, but to me, what that says is you did not, over the course of nearly three years, you couldn't think of enough good ideas (laughs) to bring to Spotify with a team of people around you. You couldn't figure out 
more than half of one good idea. <laughs> like that's not on Spotify. That's on you. Um, so anyway, so to wrap it up, to put a bow on this book, um, because I think that we need to, um, put a bow on this book and go to bed. Uh, we didn't learn anything new. All of the allegations that he made were all things mostly that we've heard before. So, uh-huh. uh, he, he took a stab at everybody in the Royal family, except literally for the everyone. queen, literally yep. everyone. Um, and, um, if the in game, Prince Philip, even Prince Philip, um, yeah. don't talk so poorly of the dead. Um, I know, right? so I think that his end game was to make money. And, um, I still don't know what he means by end game for the Royals. So <laughs> I think I don't that. maybe it, maybe it's William's end game to be King prior to, uh, Charles dying. I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't feel like I got a real sense of what, why he called it in game other than the fact that it's very similar in title. In fact, exact title of the Marvel movie. So that when you Google it, that's what you get is the Marvel movie, which in my opinion was much more entertaining than this book. (laughs) I would agree. The Marvel movie was far and away more entertaining and you know what it was a lot shorter because i had to listen to this on two times speed all day (laughs) and i still didn't finish it (laughs) i'm so sorry you took one for the team though i appreciate you oh i tried i I appreciate you it's because i love you all so much i know we wanted to get it out there and so it usurped an episode that we had coming that was sort of the wrap-up of harry and megan so we will drop that episode next thursday and then we're moving into a whole new series and we'll talk about that when we talk to you next week so courtney thank you so much for taking one for the team spending all day with omid so i didn't have to (laughs) Um, and we no will, problem. um, and let us know what you guys thought. If you read it, yeah, leave a, leave a comment for us. <laughs> let us know if it changed your life or you, um, had revelations that you didn't know about before. Anyway, y'all take care. Good night. All right. Bye. <laughs>